It's a popular passage. It's really popular with athletes, uh, for instance, Christian athletes. And you can probably guess which one it is. The popular passage about doing all things. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's in our passage today. And it's become kind of a catch-all phrase for, I can do anything, I can do whatever I feel like doing because God is going to give me the power to do it. It's a verse that uses motivation to win Super Bowls for Christian athletes, right? Or national championships. It's a verse that's used kind of as incentive for getting the next promotion or the next raise. It's used as inspiration to get um, the fill-in-the-blank of your dreams, right? So the, the house of your dreams, the car of your dreams, the vacation of your dreams, the body of your dreams, the spouse of your dreams, the body spouse of your dreams, the retirement of your dreams, you know? This verse is used in that kind of way. And a lot of people find great encouragement from this verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, verse 13. And... Um, I think it's, it's the evidence of how uh, many people derive such encouragement from it is seen just in, like, Pinterest, right? How many Pinterest images have, uh, I could, if you do, this is an interesting exercise. Type in Philippians 4.13 on Pinterest and find out all of the little trinkets and things, you know. Okay, like t-shirts I get, artwork I get, but you see this one? Those are socks. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Socks, custom-made socks. I thought that was funny. I don't know. Um, and uh, and again, not to knock this. This is this is a great thing. I want people to be motivated by Scripture. I think that's a fantastic thing. And putting reminders in your home of it is great. And I'm not dogging you uh, or anybody who does this. And I imagine some of you have something like this, right? Show of hands. If you have this verse. And so, uh, so I don't have a problem with things like that. Um, my, my concern is when that verse is used, taken out of context, and used for motivation for achievement or success. Because in context, I think we'll see it, it means something a little bit different than that. Here's, uh, uh, and again, not to, to be critical here, but this is from Joel Osteen. This is, a, this is kind of an example of how this verse is used. Um, and this was in one of his little daily devotionals from, from some time back. When was the last time you declared, this is him writing, I can out loud. It's not something people think to do every day. In fact, most people tend to magnify their limitations. They focus on their shortcomings. But scripture makes it plain all things are possible to those who believe. That's right. It is possible to see your dreams fulfilled. It is possible to overcome that obstacle. It is possible to climb to new heights. It is possible to embrace your destiny. You may not know how it will all take place. You may not have a plan. But all you have to know is that if God said you can, you can. Today, why don't you begin to open yourself up to possibilities in your future by simply declaring this verse. And what verse does he quote? I could do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's a great verse. It's a fantastic verse, but I think it actually, in context, means something a little bit differently than achieving your dreams or embracing your destiny. 
by the way, if it's your destiny, can you really not embrace it? Uh, anyway, that's a... I would contend this morning that this verse is actually, although this verse is used for motivation and for success, I think in context this verse is uh, not about ambition or achievement or success, but contentment. This verse is not about achievement, but non-achievement. When you don't achieve. Or when you're, you don't get the life of your dreams. Because maybe God's plans have something different for you. Indeed, this passage this morning is about the secret of contentment. And so our scripture reading will be verses 10 through 13. I invite you to follow along with me. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the reading of God's word. So Paul, is, he's winding down his letter, and I want to get to a little bit of background here. Um, in verse 10, he speaks about uh, rejoicing because of the Philippians have given financial support to his ministry. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that you've rev- revived your concern for me. Now, again, notice the word rejoice. This is a major theme in this letter of the Philippians. Nine times that this verb to, to joy or to rejoice is used. And if you actually count all the other root or you know, cognate words to it, 23 times he uses some form of the word like joy or to rejoice or to give thanks, which is related to that word. Uh, grace and favor and gratitude and gift. So he begins by saying, I'm grateful... For your gift, I rejoice because of the partnership that you have had with me in this gospel, um, in my gospel ministry. And so he wants to thank them for his generosity. He wants to express his gratitude for their generosity in his ministry. Apparently, they sent a gift through Epaphroditus, who he mentions earlier in the letter. But you see a little bit more details about that in verses 14 through 18. Follow along with me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, uh, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. They were kind of his financial backers when Paul began his ministry. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Okay? A fragrant offering, a a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So one of the, uh, the situations behind the crafting of this letter is Paul's writing a thank you letter to a bunch of the donors to his financial or to his uh, gospel ministry who have supported him along this this way. 
and the gifts had uh, come. He says, I'm well supplied and all of that. So this is the background behind this, this last paragraph. And so he begins by saying, hey, I'm rejoicing because of the gifts you've given me. And uh, uh, he says, you know, indeed you were concerned for me, and you had, but you had no opportunity until the recent uh, moments. But it's as almost as if he catches himself. Notice what he says in verse 11. He's like, wait, but I'm not asking for any more money, by the way. He goes, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Okay, so I'm not writing. That's not the point of this letter. I did just want to say thank you for, uh, for your gifts. But it's in that kind of background, that setting, we get the focus uh, of the reason why he doesn't feel that he's in need. And it's also the focus that the Holy Spirit has given us as our main focus for this morning for our reflection. The second half of verse 11. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So this morning I want us to to learn four things from this little passage, this little close to Paul's letter to the Philippians about contentment. Indeed, the secret of contentment is is how he describes it later on. Four things about contentment. First of all, contentment is a discipline to be learned. Contentment is a discipline to be learned. Paul says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. The Greek word there is uh, amathon. It's related to the word uh, learner. It's related to the word for disciple. The Greek word for disciple uh, uh, is literally a learner. So this is not the term that would be used in order to like gain knowledge, you know, that kind of thing. This is a different kind of learning. It's learning uh, as one who submits themselves under the authority of someone else. So in Jesus' day, at Jesus' time, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher, and he would take with him his 12 disciples. They were 12 learners who were learning his life through experience, through instruction from their teacher. And that's the word here that Paul is using in terms of this contentment. I have learned contentment. And so I would would say it like this. Contentment is a discipleship matter. Contentment is a discipleship matter. It's not, first and foremost, an emotion. Okay? Because in in our culture, in our day, when you hear the word contentment, it's a feeling that starts somewhere and kind of trickles down your spine and you're just kind of content. I, I want to tell you today, contentment is not, first and foremost, an emotion. It's a discipline. It's a discipline. It's something that is learned. Uh, and I'm reminded, I was reminded of this last night, and I looked this up. Uh, my, my freshman year at Judson College, um, at a Christian college, they, they all gave us this thin little book by a guy named Walter Trovish. Has anybody seen this book? <laughs> I mean, this is, it's old. That's an old book. And, um, but I loved the title, and it was very thought-provoking, especially uh, for a bunch of young 20-something full of hormone freshman, right, in college, um, and where he talks about what love is. 
and I love the title. Love is a feeling. He's not going to deny that love is a feeling. But it's a feeling that needs to be learned. And he talks about love is an action. Love is something you do. Love is a commitment. Before it's an emotion. And so I was just, I thought, you know what? This is a very fascinating book in those days. And I remember, that's when I became aware of the truth that God's love for us must not be, need to, to be seen as an emotional, uh, you know, kind of warm, fuzzy feelings for us. God's love for us is demonstrated in what he does, his commitment to what he does. Romans 5, God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Jesus didn't go to the cross because of the butterflies in his stomach for sinners. He did it out of commitment. He loved. Ephesians 5, Paul tells the husbands, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? And gave himself up for her. John, in 1 John chapter 3, By this we know what love is. That he laid down his life for us. See, love is an action. Feelings might be involved, but love is a discipline. It's something that is done. Jesus didn't go to the cross for warm, fuzzy feelings. And in the same way that this book, I was thinking that the similar thing can be said for contentment. Contentment is not first and foremost an emotion. It's a discipline. It's something that is done, that you do. Some think that contentment is a feeling that overtakes you. I think of uh, Elizabeth Gilbert in her book, Eat, Pray, Love, which ended up becoming a movie as well, too. She writes this about contentment. At some point, you've got to let go and sit still and allow contentment to come to you. And with all due respect, I think that Ms. Gilbert is, is not correct here. This isn't true for other areas and other disciplines. Right? If contentment is something that is learned, how many things that need to be learned do you say, at some point you've got to let go, sit still, and allow that discipline to just come to you? At some point you've got to let go, sit still, and allow algebra to come to you. Right? You know, at some point you've got to sit still, let, uh, let go, and allow critical thinking to come to you. No. She's, she's, she's right if contentment is an emotion. But contentment is less an emotion than it is uh, a discipline, something that needs to be done that we do with intentionality. We do contentment. We learn contentment. So we seek to learn it. Now, the emotional side may come. And I think anybody who's been married for many, many years would know that when you commit and you act in commitment to in a relationship, the, the feelings you know may ebb and flow, uh, but there's something about that the feelings you get later on when you've acted in commitment and you've been through the hard stuff, right? So in seeking the discipline of commitment, you may end up feeling contentment, but before it is a feeling, contentment is a discipline. It is a discipline to be learned. And the second thing is, contentment does not come naturally to us. Contentment does not come naturally. We seem uh, we seem directed away from contentment and into discontentment. And I think that there's a profound theological reasons why 
I think one example goes right to the very beginning of the biblical story of Adam and Eve. Let me read for you verse, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. This is the serpent speaking to Adam and to Eve. He just tried to, you know, get them to, um, to eat of the tree that God had told them not to eat of. God had given them every tree in the garden. He says, but don't eat from this one. And the serpent shows up. He goes, why don't you eat from this one? And he gives this reason. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. You will be like God. Knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Our first parents, in paradise, in innocency, were discontent. They had not learned what it means to be content. They aspired for more. It's not enough to just be in the image of God as his creatures to serve him as the, the highest of all of the creatures on the earth. They said, you know what? No, we can be like God. Why should I settle for this when I could get to this? Right? So discontentment finds its origins in our rebellion, in our sin nature. One Puritan writer said this, they had the choice of, of this situation in Genesis 3. They had the choice of any of the trees in the garden, yet none would content them but the tree of knowledge, which they supposed would have been as I salve to have made them omniscient. Oh, then, if this lesson was so hard to learn in innocency, how hard shall we find it who are clogged with corruption? Discontentment, it comes natural to us. It's part of our sinful nature. It comes easy because it's fundamentally connected to the fall. And apart from resting in Christ, resting in our proper place with the sovereign God and ruler over everything, apart from that, we will never experience contentment. As Augustine said uh, in the very opening paragraph of his famous work, Confessions, He's writing to God and he's expressing this prayer. To praise you is the desire of men, a little piece of your creation. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because, and he says this, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. Discontentment is a problem, is plagued with our human nature and will always be there. So, Contentment is a discipline to be learned because contentment does not come naturally to us. And number three, contentment must be learned in all stations of life. This we get from what Paul says in verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. Notice that phrase, in any and every circumstance. Learning the secret of contentment applies to everyone in every situation of life.
And so I was thinking, uh, I was thinking about this and uh, talking about this with Janet the other night too, um, when we were at a church many years ago, right when we were first married, and we were in a huge Bible study class. And I think it was in the Sermon on the Mountain, the the, the person who was leading this this um, Bible study and this discussion uh, asked the question, and this was pretty at a pretty affluent church too. Um, he says, "Can you be poor and be a lover of money?" You know, one of the scripture verses Paul says. Uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. And he says, can you be poor and be a lover of money? And, you know, so, some people kind of shook their head and, you know, they, their answer was no. And the assumed answer was no. But I raised my hand and I said, well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can. Not, not having money does not make you immune from loving money. You don't have to have money to love money. And you, you can go, you can not have money, but think that acquiring more money will be the solution to your problems. And I think that, uh, with thinking back on that, that little, and I think there was kind of some looks around like, huh, you know, I hadn't, wasn't really expecting that answer. Um, similarly, I think in a similar way, uh, you can be, have plenty of money and be discontented with what you have. And so this learning of contentment, this discipline of contentment, applies no matter what station of life you're in. I would say in every station of life that you're in. Paul uh, outlines it for us. He kind of talks in two categories, and I kind of broke it down like this. Uh, I've learned the secret in whatever situation I am, in any and every circumstance. And then on one side of the, the ledger, you would say, I've learned how to be brought low. He's learned in facing hunger. He's learned contentment in facing need. And on the other extreme, he has, and I've learned how to abound. And I've learned contentment when I've had to abound, when I've been in a situation where I've abound. I've learned contentment in facing plenty. I've learned contentment in abundance. He doesn't learn contentment on one side of those things. And by the way, it's not just two categories. He's kind of just setting up two extremes. And he's saying everything in between. Contentment is something that can be learned in wherever you are, at whatever spot you are on the continuum. So contentment is, uh, must be learned in all stations of life. And then number four, contentment cannot be obtained in our strength. How does Paul learn this? This is where verse 13 comes in. Notice how verse 13 comes right on the heels of what he said in 11 and 12. I can do all things. And in context, it's all of this. I can learn contentment when I'm abounding. And I can learn contentment uh, when I'm brought low. I can learn contentment in hunger. I have learned contentment when I've had plenty. Because it is Christ who strengthens me. Christ is the one who has given him the power to do that. Seen in this context, this famous verse is not except... You now, hopefully now you can see when you look at the whole context, that this is not a, a verse primarily about accessing your untapped potential, Right? It's about learning contentment with wherever you are in life. Something that doesn't come naturally to us. 
but yet needs to be learned. Uh, one writer in uh, his book, Dr. Eric Bargerhoff, writes in his book, The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. He says of it, this verse, Philippians 4.13, is not really about who has the strength to play the best of their abilities in a sporting contest. This verse is about having strength to be content when we are facing those moments in life when physical resources are minimal. And I would add to that, and when physical resources are plenty. How do you face that? With contentment, with the right kind of heart. So this verse is not about ambition or to achievement or advancing. And it's not about God playing a supporting role in your agenda and in your plan and your goals and your success. That makes you the center of the biblical narrative. Rather, God is the central person in the narrative of the scriptures, and that we are able to learn contentment when we understand our proper place in his story. Contentment is a discipline, and I said this, it's a discipline that needs to be learned, but it is not anything that can be learned on our own power apart from Christ. I I hear, if I were to kind of take Paul's life and expand out and do a paraphrase of what he's saying here, I would say, Paul is saying, I'm able to surrender my goals for God's goals. Remember, he's in jail at this time. He's wondering, do I get out? Am I going to get a death sentence? Chapter 1. He goes, well, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He goes, I am able to surrender my goals for God's goals. I am able to relinquish my agenda and submit to God's agenda. I am able to endure house arrest, prison, Public floggings, stonings, beating with rods. I am able to undergo shipwrecks, being adrift at sea. I am able to face hunger and deprivation and danger and persecution and abundance through him who strengthens me. And this really is a profound act of God's grace. Especially God's grace in our weakness. Look at what Paul um, writes to the Corinthians. Um, And let uh, let me read some context here to that. Um, Chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. I'll actually go back a couple of verses prior to that. Where Paul writes, um, I'll go back to verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, this is, Writing to them, he's, he's talking about boasting, and there's others who boast, and he goes, I'm not going to boast. And he says this in verse 7, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, revelations that uh, Paul has been given by God himself. He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And this is where verse 9 comes in. He goes, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. There's the word again. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
And I think Paul is getting this from Isaiah. This is one of, one of my favorite parts of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, where, the, where Isaiah writes, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint. He's not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power, his power, to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I think Paul is saying, that's the sentiment Paul is saying here. I could do all things through him who strengthens me. Because I am weak, and when I am weak, he is strong. I am too weak to, to do this discipline of contentment on my own. I get the strength to do that because of Christ. And I want to flesh out a little theologically why that is true. So just a, bear with me here for just a few moments. Because, it, he grounds this, I believe, because in Jesus Christ, as the eternal Son of God, who had infinite riches in glory, yet for our sakes he became poor. See, Jesus, Jesus knows these extremes, and he knows contentment in those extremes. Jesus Christ can turn water into wine. He can feed 5,000 people, 4,000 people with uh, some bread and some fish. He could turn stones to bread if he wanted to, and yet chose hunger instead. Jesus Christ willfully and obediently made himself low by being stripped naked, paraded around Jerusalem, and publicly nailed to a cross to save all who would believe in him. That's the source of our strength. So, so take here what Paul is saying. I have learned the secret of being content in being brought low. Why? Because Jesus Christ empowered me to be able to do so. Because... He knows what it's like to be brought low. Just two chapters earlier, he says, And being found in human form, Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's the same word. I know what it means to, to be made low. That's the word that's used for Jesus in going to the cross. Paul says, I have learned the secret of, of being content in abounding. Why? Because Jesus empowered himself to. Because Jesus himself knows what it's to abound. In verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. In Christ Jesus. Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in hunger. Christ gives me the strength to experience hunger and to be content in it because he knew hunger. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights and was hungry. He knew. You could go on down the list. I have learned the secret of being content in plenty and in abundance and in need because Christ has experienced those and will provide strength to all who trust in him for that. So contentment, true contentment, like what Paul is describing here, can only come through the power of God through Christ. Hence, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Without Christ, contentment is not possible. Without being united with, to Christ, contentment is just not within our ability. Jesus had the strength to do it, and so he gives his followers the strength to do it as well.
So those are the four. Those are, those are the four lessons today. Contentment is a discipline to be learned. Contentment does not come naturally to us. Contentment must be learned in all stations of life. And contentment cannot be obtained in our strength. So I wanted to flesh out, just kind of in closing, just like a couple of ways in which we can kind of strengthen our contentment muscles. Again, remember, it's, not, it's less a feeling than it is something that we, we do. This passage has been very, very convicting for me in the last uh, couple of months in preparation for this. And so I was kind of thinking, what are some ways that I can develop my contentment muscles uh, all the while thinking about that Christ is the one who strengthens me. And the, the conclusion that I came to was to, to get rid of my stuff. Many of you are old enough to remember George Carlin in his stand-up routine when he talks about all of our stuff. We've got all this stuff. And you get a house. Why do you have a house? Well, because that's just to hold all your stuff while you go off and do other things. And then, then you keep gaining more and more stuff. And so what do you need? You need a bigger house to get more and more stuff. Um, and I just was like, you know what? I think I need to get rid of some stuff. I think in order for me to learn some, to exercise some of my contentment muscles, I need to get rid of some of my stuff. And so the first phase of that for me was to get rid of the junk, right? And so uh, I would say for you, let's, let's say we're going to do this together. Let's get rid of our stuff. And I know you have a lot of stuff. I've not been to all of your houses but I, I know you have a lot of stuff because I have a lot of stuff, and we're Americans, and we have a lot of stuff, right? Okay. Um, I've been to some of your houses, so I know you have some stuff. I've helped one or two of you move. <laughs> I just called somebody out. <laughs> they have a lot of stuff, especially when you move. You have a garage sale, huh? <laughs> well, I, I, we just had a garage sale this week. And you got a lot, I've got a lot of stuff. And we put so much stuff in the garage, and the garage is completely full, and you go back in the house, and it didn't look like we took any stuff out, right? We got a lot of stuff. And so, um, so a couple of things that I've been working on, and maybe you can do this as well. Um, get rid of your stuff. I would say get rid of your junk first. Um, and actually, this is, a this is a no-brainer. This is just kind of common sense, right? If it's junk, get rid of it. There's nothing courageous about getting rid of junk. There's nothing courageous about going and finding seven things you don't use. You know, that broken uh, bowling pin that's in your garage. You're like, I don't know why I keep on to that thing. I know that at my bachelor party. Whatever. It, that's a no-brainer. Get rid of that stuff, right? Um, and then I would say, but don't stop there. I would say, now, get rid of stuff you like. That you want to kind of cling on to, but you like. Get rid of that as well, too. Because it might be something that could be very useful for somebody else as well, too. And then I would say the next phase for that, that, that I'm working hard to do as well, in order for me to exercise. Remember, this is a discipline. Contentment is a discipline. I'm learning contentment by getting rid of the junk. I'm learning contentment by getting rid of stuff I like. And I'm learning contentment by getting rid of some stuff that will hurt a little. Okay? And this, uh, this takes me back to uh, a mission trip I used to do with the junior hires, and it was an exercise we used to do with them when we were going to um, Cherokee National uh, Park, uh, uh, Cher Cherokee 
Indian reservation in North Carolina. And we would go and do Bible camps and stuff like that there. And we challenged all of the kids who were coming to this camp to have something that they loved that they could get rid of and give away. What a powerful thing that was to see kids who had a teddy bear from when they were two, who loved this teddy bear, to give that teddy bear to somebody who didn't have one. What an exercise that was in contentment. To give something you, you love. To give something that will hurt. Those are just some, some examples of things that, that I have done in order to ex- exercise this, these muscles of contentment. And I've given away, um, given away a lot of stuff. And I, I still have stuff to give away. So, Brothers and sisters, to close out Paul's letter, can we together go on a journey, discipleship of contentment? To practice contentment. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then I would say, let's read verse 19 together, all of us. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Brothers who are with me, greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word that speaks to us generation after generation, century after century. Because it is your word you have spoken. And we are grateful for the Holy Spirit to come and to speak these words to us and to open up our minds and and open up our hearts to understand what you would have for us. God, help us to, as as Paul has many times in many ways has has, uh, called on his churches to follow after his imitation, to follow his example and his pattern. God, may we follow his example and pattern in learning contentment. Break us of this notion, God, that this is just a feeling that overtakes us. But it's something that we discipline to do and we work to do. God, we ask that you make us new and that you help uh, through Christ to overcome our sin nature that, that bends us toward discontentment. And God, we ask that you do this no matter where we are in life. At no point, God, are we exempt from learning this lesson. So teach us. And we ask, God, that you do this by Christ who strengthens us. May our focus be on him. Again, thank you for your word. And may your word push down into our lives so it transforms us and changes us into the image of of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said.
Amen and amen. Would you stand for closing benediction? And our benediction today will be verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit as you go. Thank you.